This is the Bummer Dude Podcast book review on Sapiens, chapters two, three, and four of part one, The Cognitive Revolution. My name is Frank Huerta. I am joined by Alex Kenzie. Hello. Previously, we had discussed chapter one, an animal of no significance. Um, kind of wanted to recap that a little bit, but I lost my notes for it. Really? So, yeah, I don't know. They're, they're, we're right here and now they're not. So, we can begin with chapter two. Uh, it picks up more or less where chapter one left off uh, of, of the earliest, earliest days of humans, homo sapiens, and uh, sort of us commingling with other human beings, uh, cousin species, if you will. So some 70 odd years ago, we, we being homo sapiens, you and I today, left the continent of Africa to go settle in Eurasia, the Middle East and Eastern Asia. And 45 years ago, somehow, some way, we decided to... 45,000. What did I say? 45,000, 45, 45, way longer than 45 years ago. We decided to set sail into Australia, into the outback. And that is where the significance, the everlasting footprint of human beings as we know them began to make their mark on the world. Um, and we did that by killing off a bunch of species of animals. Was that, was that a uh, plane? Did you hear that? Yeah, was that a plane? Yeah, it was a helicopter for the um, hospital right down the street. Oh, okay. Yep. Um, so we get into Australia and, uh, well, hold on. Before we get there, there was the the discussion of how Homo sapiens prevailed over other human species. And the book makes the case for language mm -hmm. being the catalyst for our advancement and our growth. But more than language, it was gossip. Yes. And it was the ability to talk about other sapiens. Because it gives the example that a eagle can let out a certain squeal that lets people know a lion is in the area or lets other eagles know a lion is in the area. And a, and a monkey is smart enough to know that if they hear that sound, then a lion's in the area and they have to, they have to make, make some move to get away from that. So language isn't a specific uh, sapien trademark, but the ability to theorize and fictionalize things so that we understand them as stories and fiction, myths, religion, um, pagan religions, myths about, you know, why we do what we do, who we worship, why we worship the sun, why we worship the moon, why we sacrifice babies on an altar, why we do anything um, is, is more or less a myth, fiction made up. And it is that 
advancement of a of a sapien that allowed us to outlast any other humans plus rise to the top of the hierarchy of beings yeah and i i really liked uh or i was thought found it interesting uh when it was talking about like group size affected this a mm. lot too uh it said it, it around 150 uh people is is like w- what the typical group, I guess you would say, kind of moved in or like where they found that the gossip um, was effective because like most of those people would be able to know each other at least in some way, like have some kind of relationship with each other. I, I think there, I think it, the point was that it was 150 people that you could have an intimate relationship with. Yes. And then once you begin to spill over 150, then your relationships begin to, you're not, you're not capable of holding that many people in close regard in your head, right? So mm-hmm. I think it gave the example of, of hierarchical institutions or structures that are necessary when you're dealing with something that's more than 150 people mm-hmm. because you need to categorize it. You need to make sense of it somehow. So you compartmentalize it into, you know, an LLC that has an HR yeah. group and a, and a, you know, an accounting group and a sales group and a marketing group you can understand those groups and you might even know the heads of each one of them, but you're going to have a hard time having a relationship with, right. You know, some junior inside sales guy Mm -hmm. or that team or whatever. So it, 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 it made the case that if you're in a tribe and you're, you're scurrying and, and, and scavenging for food or whatever, there's, there's no real need for a, hierarchical structure right you could you could exist in a commune yep easier and they even made the case that um they even made the case that communes versus a nuclear family were more or less the uh, the norm way back when mm-hmm. because you would have less than 150 people in your society you're always moving you're never really stationary you got to contend with the weather. Yeah, think about that, man. Think about like if you had to from month to month, week to week, whatever, like move because your food source was out or, you know, the weather, you know, this, the next few months, we know there's going to be snow that we're, you know, we're going to walk a couple hundred miles or whatever the hell to, or go to this cave and live there for the next four months. It's yeah. wild, man. And, and and contend with a bunch of things that could kill you. Yeah. Right. And, um, you know, I didn't realize there were saber tooth tigers in America until I read uh, that's more in chapter four. But like, I never knew that they, those were here. Yeah, hordes of them. So uh, that's a good segue because they. I mean, chapter two more or less was the was the presentation of a of a sapien as a as a gossiper, and that's yep. really what allowed us to formulate the ability to create myths and legends and things like that. Um, there, there was a, there was a theory presented that because, um, earlier human, earlier sapiens had to, uh, know how to do a lot of things that perhaps they were cognitively more advanced than, than present day humans. Whereas like you or I, like you'll be an expert in, 
audio engineering, but you couldn't tell me the first thing about how to build a gas station mm-hmm. and I and vice versa. Right. Right. And I don't know how to grow lettuce and I don't know how to make a computer, but I, you know, we take these things for granted because everyone else has that shared knowledge where if somebody wanted to pursue that, they, they could, but back in the day you had to know how to do everything. Yeah. Yeah. They met, they said that their senses were heightened and that possibly at that time that that was the like most aware or like, not necessarily the smartest cause it's different. Like when you look at it from today, like they couldn't operate a cell phone, but like they were the most aware and like knew how to do exactly like, like how they would hunt and, and yeah. use Flint and instantly turn it into an arrowhead mm-hmm. um, and be aware of like, Oh, I hear these very like quiet footsteps, 400 meters, mm-hmm. like whatever away. Um, In tune with how a branch breaks. Yeah. And it's, it's how another yeah. leaf cracks on the ground. And to think, I mean, I, I guess we <laughs> we get dumber every day with all the social media and all that stuff. But to think that like we were smarter 60,000 years ago as well. It makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense. It makes sense yeah. because like, yeah, we're dumber, dude. We take in so much information that we're all so stupid. Mm-hmm. And yeah. back in the day, you know, it's not like they didn't take in a lot of information, but they just, it was out of necessity. It wasn't, it wasn't so, you know, you could theorize about this that, and the other it was, you know, I need to know how to do this to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had the ability to do that. When we decided to make a trek over to Australia, mm-hmm. hold on, I'm getting my chapters mixed up. I want to keep this a little bit concise because I, I, I really want it to match with the chapters. Yeah. But, but still in chapter, in chapter three now, there was the, you know, the commune theory that, that there wasn't a nuclear family. Um, and, and they even made the case that a nuclear family is incompatible in our DNA. Yeah. And I know a lot of people will make that case today as well. Um, really interesting idea. Yeah. I mean, just, just because that's the way we lived way back when, I mean, I don't know how long does it, how long does it take for, for, uh, uh somebody to evolve into that? Right. Because if you're saying, mm-hmm a commune was a better idea back in the day because you had less people in your group. Um, I think you could make the case that today a nuclear family is a better route because we're not a commune per se, right? We don't need to sleep around with a bunch of people to spread our seed to, you know, extend our survival. That isn't necessarily right now. So I guess you could make the no. case that we've evolved into a nuclear family, but they made they, the book made the case. that's like specifically like not in our DNA. Right. Right. Which could make sense. Cause it probably takes longer for that to like get out of your DNA. But like, yeah, these days, like back then when your group size was 150 or less, like you could probably do that. And, and they even said that like a uh, female would have multiple partners. Um, but then, when, you know, when she would get pregnant, they wouldn't know who the dad was. So they just like, as a group fathered mm-hmm. those children, which is like really right. interesting. But like today that's not possible. Like, how would you really do that? Day yeah. to day? I, I try, mean, swinging, try swinging one that by your wife. <laughs> hey, I got an idea. <laughs> this isn't in my DNA. So in time it, it might change, but I could definitely see that. And it's like, even, even when you're married, like as, as, as faithful and loving as, as you are, like, you know, a guy still just is going to like maybe look at, at a girl or whatever and be like, Oh damn, like she looks good or whatever. Like that's in your DNA to, I, I guess, like 
be curious or, or, or like observant of that, I guess. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, but like, you know, like, like you're saying that now these days it's the nuclear family that like seems to make the most sense for survival. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think so. Right. Like, cause what's, what's the most important thing for like the advancement of your offspring. And I think that would be that they are able to, you know, be brought up to do as many things as possible and be as, you know, have every opportunity to learn as much as they could. And yeah, I mean, I think the best vessel for that would be a nuclear family. So I don't know. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. a strong thing to say that, you know, it may not be in our DNA, but also we should point out that a lot of this up until this point has been all theory. And uh, the author even says that there, there, there was no certainty with the, with the forager history, um, you know, back 70,000 years ago, but they, they did mention, you know, how the foragers probably ate better than the peasants that came Mm -hmm. later, you know, 60,000, 65,000 years after where, you know, they were happy to eat rice. If you're like a Chinese peasant, like way back in the day, you were happy to eat rice uh, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and and do it again the next day because you didn't have any other options where these guys might, you know, eat 15 different things in a day and, you know, another 12 different things the next, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, that makes sense. If, if I think of like, like Black Plague, medieval times, like, yeah, those sure. people were probably eating like bread and like frogs or like whatever the hell they could find some small little rodent sure uh, um, yeah and like you're saying like foragers are eating wild onions and berries and nuts mm-hmm. and all yeah. this no uh, you know kind of sounds cool actually yeah um the last point uh, that i took from that chapter was uh that they they tried to examine just how violent these ancient ancestors were mm-hmm. and i forget i forget the number uh i of skulls that they found that that could have been mm. a product of violence, but they said it was about 5%. And I think in the, tw- he said in the 20th century, which saw, you know, the likes of Hitler, Lenin and, and Mao and um, Stalin and countless other genocides. Uh, I think it would, the violent death was only like 4% of the death. It's pretty but wild. Back, back then calculating what they were able to find in, in fossilized skeletons, that percentage may have been closer to 5%. And, um, uh, so interesting to think about, but that was only in, in one area, the Danube I was going to say, yeah, yeah. I was going to say there was a whole nother area that was completely different that they found yeah, little to no correct. evidence of violence. Um, so then it gets into some really, really interesting stuff when it talks about, when the book talks about, um, the amount of animals that sapiens have made extinct. Um, here's, here's some of, of the animals that used to exist, uh, in, in the world and now don't, um, 450 pound kangaroos marsupial lions, which were the largest land predator in Australia, flightless birds, two times the size of an ostrich, uh, two and a half ton wombat, um, just to, just to name a few. So 
the, the book made the case that, and, and I, I still think, you know, we're, we're theorizing a little bit based off of the limited evidence that we were able to extract out of, um, out of fossilized skeletons that we were able to find, but about 90% of the megafauna in Australia went extinct exactly around the time when we would have crossed the ocean into Australia and began to inhabit it. And, and it, uh, it made the same case for, um, North and, uh, South America with woolly mammoths and zebra tooth tigers. And, um, I guess, uh, North American camels, North American horses, um, all going extinct when, uh, when sapiens began to explore their land. Um, and it, the book is now starting to get a little bit more uh, sure of themselves. The author is getting a little bit more sure of himself about this is really not up for dispute. And this was caused by sapiens. There's theories that could point to climate change, right? And not and not climate change the way that you and I know it today, but climate change like ice ages. Yep. You know, uh, the 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 it's a mastodon, mm-hmm. big giant flying bird. I guess that that thing survived two ice ages, and or or two cycles of one ice age, and only went extinct around the time of human beings, sapiens invading their land. So, I mean, that's a big eye opener, right? Like I I know we think about what we do today and we're cognizant of the damage that we are doing to the living animals that we know of right now. Mm -hmm. But it looks like we've been doing some damage for a long time. Now, was that, I was kind of curious, was that more, a lot of it, like through hunting or based on we come in, we destroy their habitat, they can no longer live, they die? Yeah, it's a a chain reaction, right? Because we are able to consume such a vast quantity of different things Mm -hmm. to sustain us, then any major intrusion inside of a food chain is going to disrupt other parts of that food chain. Right. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was hard to give real specific examples of what the reasoning was for that, but it was more like we can disprove other theories better than we can disprove the theory that it was the presence of sapiens. Right. Like you can't use climate change to explain most of it. And for these reasons, you know, and and, and the words indisputable were were used. The author said it's indisputable what our effect has had on these animals. Yeah. On the world, man. 
on you know huge rainforests and huge lush areas of vegetation and i mean i'm sure yeah but 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 i think that like in the context of this that's that's like a little flea i think that's a little tick on a dog compared Mm -hmm. to like the, the craziness of of our presence i mean and even like but you know back then we were, what were we doing? We were just living, you know, we right. were just existing, surviving, trying to, you know, hunting and gathering, trying to exist. We weren't, you know, producing things and extracting carbon from underground and putting it back above ground. And we were, we were doing half of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, man, it, it was, it was a big eye opener. If you, if you can subscribe to that theory and the author seems to be very sure that there's not a better one to describe, you know, the 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 loss of existence of so many different species of animal right but to be fair i don't think we need like woolly mammoths or saber tigers running around <laughs> sorry you guys are gone but like yeah are we better off for it i don't know probably yeah probably i mean it's like it's like us or them right yeah i mean at a point you know yeah. at the end of the day it sucks but in the day, it's it's us for them, right? Right. It's just it's crazy to think then, like you know, forty thousand years later or whatever, when we we come over and we invade and like people are here already, like we that got redone to them, <laughs> like the same things that like their ancestors did to the planet and animals and and everything. Oh, are you talking about like like Spanish conquests and all that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah kind of yeah. like came full circle in a way, in a weird way, uh, where we're like invading ourselves. Yeah, I guess kind of did, huh? Yeah. I, I thought it was cool. I learned, I, I never knew this. There is an ice age every, on average, about every th- hundred thousand years. Yeah. Um, I'm just so curious. Like, obviously we won't be around for it, but like what, like if, if humans are around in, in the next 80,000 years or whatever it's been, uh, like how do we combat that? Like, what do we design to stop cl- like actual climate change? Do we, have we actually just sped it up with every, all the shit we've done? <laughs> like, it's interesting it's almost impossible to have any significant impact on the climate when you try to do so purposefully. Right. Mm -hmm. There was a, um, there was a study done uh, in Europe that involved a bunch of uh, Nobel laureates and they basically took like the, the, the problems of the world, right. Child hunger in Africa, um, you know, viral diseases in other parts of the world, climate change, poverty, violence, genocide, wars, this, that, and the other. They take all these problems mm-hmm. and they built a scale to determine what the significance of $1 is in the amount of good that they could do for a single problem. Right. And at the top of the list was things like child hunger in Africa or child hunger anywhere in the world. That is a relatively inexpensive problem to fix. Mm. So $1 of good might contribute $1 might contribute $50 of good. Right. Right. Climate change was like way down the list. And they Mm. determined that if you took all of the resources that we could diverted them from these other problems and said in a hundred years, the, in a hundred years, the problem will be so that we are extinct. 
So we need to put every resource we have into this problem for a hundred years. And their model came back and said that there was like a 1% chance that you could even get like two degree difference in overall climate really? change. With a yeah. hundred years of focused efforts. Yeah. It, wow. and, and it's just because it's so, there's so many variables. There's so much that you can't control when it comes to actual climate Yeah, that like you can, like you can make the case that over however many years we've been doing it, right? Like at least over a hundred, we've been 150. We've been extracting carbon from underneath the earth and then burning it and expelling it into atmosphere. You can make the case that over that period of time that has done significant damage, right? But the counter argument cannot be made. You can't put that back into a bottle. You can't just say, well, We've been focusing our efforts on polluting the air. Oh, Let's now focus our efforts on trying to reverse that. And the answer is no, you can't. Yeah. Like it's almost impossible. Um, so yeah, man, it's interesting. Cause it's like, we're, we're kind of hurling forward with, with really no, uh, no idea about climate and what it's going to do, how it's going to affect us. And if we even can do anything about it. Do you think we'd be expediting an ice age potentially or? Yeah, I, I guess that was the, that, that was the fear back in, uh, like the seventies. Yeah. They were, they were afraid that there was going to be global cooling. Mm. I get, that was like the big thing in the, back in the seventies, global cooling. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting, right? No. Um, but anyway, that, that was basically the book or the, the, the three chapters that we read chapters, uh, two, three, and four for, uh, Sabians. And that is part one. And part one is titled The Cognitive Revolution. Um, we will begin part two, The agricult Agricultural Revolution, um, which includes the next uh, four chapters, History's Biggest Fraud, Building Pyramids, Memory Overlord, Overload, and There Is No Justice in History. Thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.